Amen. Please be seated, and please turn in your Bibles to the book of Acts, chapter 6. I have it on the insert with a short outline as well for you if you would like to look there. We have seen challenges come upon the church from without. You have uh, the first onslaught of persecution from the Jewish leaders that grew in intensity in the chapter before when um, we see another attempt to uh, put the apostles in jail and subdue their preaching of the gospel, but they can't be stopped. The Spirit of God works in them and does miraculous things and continues to multiply disciples through the preaching of the gospel. But we not only witnessed opposition from the outside, but also internally. You remember with Ananias and Sapphira and their hypocrisy and the way that played out in an early, important, crucial fountainhead phase of the church's life, and God dealt very, very strictly with that because unity is so important for the message of Christ to go forward. For to have credibility, there has to be some evidence in the life of God's church that they get forgiveness from God through Christ and can extend it to one another. So unity is a key theme throughout the life of the church even to our day. We have another challenge that occurs. Because of the growth, the rapid growth, there is difficulty in meeting essential needs that people have. And in particular, we're drawn to an instance in this passage where there are two groups, culturally different groups of Jewish people who are brought together together intensely now, and there's not an even distribution of the food going between one group and the other. So in this light, we see God solving the problem by devising a role for the church that will continue on. You might think that before this time, the church was moving and running, but not on all cylinders. But now with the addition of this office of service that comes to be known as deacon, coupled with the office that the apostles had, which would become carried out in the elders. When you have the elders and the deacons working in this harmony, you have the recipe for fruitfulness, a fruitful church. And that's what we witness occurring here, because greater persecution is coming yet in just the next chapter. So with that preface here as I read God's holy word, remember, this is the Bible. This is God's inspired word, which we can be sure is without error, and we can know it speaks to every aspect of our life. Here as I read. Now in these days, when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. And the twelve summoned the full number of the disciples and said, It is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And what they said pleased the whole gathering. And they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip, and Prochorus, and Nicanor, and Timon, and Permanus, and Nicholas, a proselyte of Antioch. These these they set before the apostles, and they prayed and laid their hands on them. And the word of God continued to increase. And the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. 
Let's bow together as I lead us in prayer. Lord, my efforts to preach your word and our collective desire to be impacted by your word cannot happen apart from the ministry of your Holy Spirit. So please send your spirit that we might understand and apply your word. I pray this in Christ's name. Amen. So what begins as a division ends up by God's solution to become a strengthening of the church that provides a harmony that makes it fruitful. We see that in this challenge, in this trial that happens, how God turns this around through the apostles and their leadership. Uh, Kent Hughes notes how delicate this situation really was. When the complaining started, we should not underestimate where that could have gone. It could have completely divided this group. Hughes says, The delicate unity of the early church became endangered, threatening the spiritual testimony of many thousands of believers. With the rapid growth of the church in Jerusalem, there came various logistical challenges. Uh, Something like making sure that everybody had food and shelter when many people came from out of town, that would be a real challenge. Sometimes a situation that could be bad really presents as something that can't be overcome turns around to be one of the great beginnings in the life of the church. That's certainly true with the role, the ministry role that comes out of this. But from this passage, we see in its embryonic form these offices or roles of elder and deacon. Um, We see the apostles who are primary for teaching the Word of God. They indeed are prophets in that they are still able by the Spirit's ministry to speak the Word of God and then teach based on it. They would eventually, though, in the very next decade, appoint elders to take their place, not to come up with new revelation, but to take the revelation entrusted to the prophets and the apostles and make sure the people had access to it, understood it, had it preached, had it taught. The apostles appoint the elders for this. And in this instance, the first people picked for diaconal ministry. They're not called deacons straight away. It's something that develops, but these are the first appointed with the role of taking care of any impediments, any hindrances there might be to the work of the ministry of the Word. They are there to figure out how to get past it so that the people of God would not be hindered from the ministry of the Word and the elders could carry that out. You could see when those two things are working right together, that is is an engine on all cylinders. And it's a beautiful thing. There's a harmony there, and there is a potency to it, and there is a fruitfulness that the church enjoys when this is working in such a way. And we get a glimpse of this in the passage before us. Calvin notes that Luke declares here the occasion and to what end, and also with what right, meaning the ordination right, that deacons were first made. But there's more to this story. It tells us a bit about elders. It tells us a bit about deacons and how when they work together in harmony, there is great peace and fruitfulness for the church. Now let's look at the passage at verse 1 and see the occasion that brings this about. Um, Verse 1. Now in these days when the disciples were increasing in number. Now the disciples are just those who are coming to Christ. They are learners. They are followers. The apostles are differentiated by their gift of apostleship. So this is talking about believers are growing. The disciples were increasing in number. A complaint by the Hellenists, those are Greek-speaking Jewish people, against the Hebrews, the Hebrew-speaking Jewish people, because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. Now, to understand this division, it's complex. It's not just that they spoke different languages. They did, 
the Hellenist Jews spoke predominantly Greek. The Hebrew Jews would have spoken most likely predominantly Aramaic. The Hebrew Jews lived in Jerusalem and around you and around that city and the temple. Whereas the Hellenist Jews came from different places and had found themselves for the Passover there in Jerusalem and were staying there. Some might have even been from the diaspora, um, the lost tribes, if you will, who were proclaiming their Judaism, but now they knew Christ. And so there are Jewish Christians, some from a Hellenistic culture, some from the Hebrew culture, and the Hebrews would have been more numerous because they're there in Jerusalem. So it may not have been malicious, but as they were distributing food, uh, the, the people that needed it most in those days especially were the widows because they didn't have any kind of safety net. They weren't able to work on their own, so they were dependent upon the community of faith. The temple had a bit of a program to help with this, but now they're Christians. And the temple was growing more and more opposed to Christianity, and so they were at the church, and the church was taking care of them. And notice the church doesn't say they shouldn't. It's an essential duty. They must do this. It's just that the apostles couldn't be taking time away from the word to do it, so we have to cover this. We need people to do this. And so this disagreement arises, and it becomes culturally based. Um, It's the Hellenistic Jews against the Hebrew Jews, and there's a bit of this complaining that's going on, and it could have driven a hard wedge in this congregation. Now, before we move on, you know what grumbling can do to a congregation. It can do it in any church, our church, any church. We just only have to look in the Old Testament to look for that exact word that's translated in Hebrew into the Greek, the same word that's here for complaining, for grumbling. Think back at your knowledge of the Old Testament. Do you remember when Moses and Aaron were trying to lead the Israelites to freedom? Remember in Exodus 16, and the whole congregation of the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. We know what happened there. In Numbers verse 14, then all the congregation raised a loud voice and the people wept that night. And all the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron. Grumbling is not to be taken lightly. Um, But there can be legitimacy to the thing that's complained about. It just needs to be addressed. And the apostles address it head on. So the circumstance is this dispute that arises. Grumbling has happened. And the apostles go to solve the issue immediately. And that's what we have before us. Derek Thomas said it kind of humorously, but not so humorously if you think about the way it happens. He said, could the New Testament church with this grumbling episode survive this sudden implosion of verbal destructive warfare? Could it? It sounded like a recipe for a church split. The first Hellenist church of Jerusalem versus the second church of Zion. You know how much that happens, right? Church planting predominantly happens by church splits, unfortunately. It's one of the worst testimonies to the world about Christ that there is, the way churches split. The apostles go to the people with a solution. The people grab hold of the solution, and it provides a timeless answer that has helped us and has borne fruit ever since. The conflict was serious. It wasn't something to be shirked. It was important. They could not ignore it. And then we see the roles come out in the church. Let's look at the role of elder that's displayed here just in brief, and then the role of deacon a bit as well, and then see how these two roles in the church working together bear fruit. Verse 2, the role of the elder through the modeling of the apostles. I say the modeling of the apostles because we know after this episode, the apostles appoint they, they plant churches and appoint elders, and the elders do the same thing they're doing when, so far as the ministry of the Word. And then the letters that Paul writes to the churches, he speaks to the elders 
who have this duty of the ministry of the word. That's how we're able to make that connection. Verse 2. And the twelve summoned the full number of the disciples. He called for a congregational meeting. The apostles said, let's have a meeting. It's just the church of Jerusalem right now. And they say boldly to the people, it's not right that we should give up preaching the word, the word of God, to serve tables. Notice it doesn't say we shouldn't serve tables anymore or we should just forget this. They should just get over this and listen to the word. Not at all. It's an essential part of the ministry of the church to take care of its members in this way. Uh, but the, the apostles could not be about it and still provide the very thing the church needed for its stability and expansion. Uh, they had to focus on the ministry of the word. And they couldn't do so if they were taking care of those physical needs that had to be met. So the role is really carved out for us. What, does the, what do the apostles do and what do they assign for the elders to do? They are to be about, in the primary way, the preaching of of the word. Now, there's a couple other synonymous terms used about the word. It's the ministry of the word of God to the people of God. It's the declaration of the word of God to the people of God. It's the teaching of what the Bible says and means. It's the preaching what it means and what we should do. It's the meditating upon it. It's the directing the church according to what the scripture says. It's, it's the ministry of the word to be overseen and carried out by the elders of the church. And they can't have distractions to do this well. And so the Lord, knowing this, and you can't get rid of these important necessities, they have to be taken care of. But here we have a reminder of what the elders should be about. Verse 3, Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the Spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. We'll come back to that. Now verse 4, another reminder of what the elders are supposed to be about. The apostles speak. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. Uh, the role of the deacon is introduced here in its embryonic form, for sure. But as it relates to the office of the elder, the apostles provide this model in what they say. But we, verse 4, will devote ourselves, devote means to uh, commit ourselves to, to spend devoted time and energy on. We will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And prayer so that we might know the will of God. We go to God about his will, seeking his will so that we might obey him, seeking those needs that we have for him to supply them. We'll pray for those things in connection with the ministry of the word that helps us know the will of God to pray more intelligently with more focus and clarity. We need to be about praying and ministering the word. That's what the elders have to be about for the church's leadership's sake. That's what their main goal and purpose is. Once the mercy ministry of the church was met, those physical needs that have to be met, the apostles could go back to their ministry of praying and teaching and preaching the word. That's what they were calling for at this moment, and it's a reminder to us of what the elders should be about. The apostles appointed these elders after to continue on in the ministry of, the, of prayer and the word. You know, the book of Acts spans some 30 years. Right now in, the, in Acts chapter 6, we're at the year 34 A.D., by the time we get to chapter 14, we're 10 years ahead of time. And then Acts 20, we're even further ahead than that. In fact, listen to how this unfolds concerning the office of elder. 10 years after this episode we're reading about in Acts 14, when they had preached the gospel to that city and had made disciples, they returned to Lystra and to Iconium and to Antioch, strength, strengthening the souls of the disciples. This is Paul on a missionary journey doing the work of evangelism and church planting. 
encouraging them to continue in the faith. What do they do when they leave those churches or before they leave those churches? Saying that through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. He warns them about what is to come. Then, Acts 14, verse 23, And when they had appointed elders for them in every church, a multiplicity, a multitude of elders, not just one, several elders in every church, with prayer and fasting, they committed them to the Lord in whom they had believed. The apostles were modeling the work the elders should do. Once they leave, the elders would be there, and there would be a plurality of them to oversee the spiritual life and teaching of the church. Then, a couple years after this, in Acts chapter 20, another missionary journey. Now to Ephesus. Now from Miletus he sent to Ephesus and called the elders of the church to come to him. So Paul is summoning the elders of Ephesus to come and hear him speak. He said, You yourselves know how I lived among you the whole time from the first day that I set foot in Asia, serving the Lord with all humility and with tears and with trials that happened to me through the plots of the Jews. How I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you in public and from house to house, not just public, but house to house in the homes of the believers. Paul modeling this ministry of the word and prayer, testifying both to the Jews and to the Greeks of repentance towards God and of faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, clarity about what the message is that he is supposed to uphold. Then, Acts 20, verse 27, for you yourselves... For I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock, in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. We find that, that the authors in the New Testament use overseer, bishops, presbyters, elders. They very interchangeably. Some have special extra emphasis on devoting to the word, but all these elders are responsible for the ministry of the word. And then look what he says in closing in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. This is just 12 years removed from this initial text that we are in in Acts 6. Then, 10 years after that, when Paul's writing back to these churches that he planted, he writes to a pastor in Ephesus, the same place that he talked to in Acts 20, and he writes to Timothy, who is the pastor there. He says, Timothy, let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. So we know that some of the elders had special emphasis and focus on it. That's what we have our pastors do. We're all elders, but we'll have some do extra training to do more focused teaching and preaching in the church. We see how that office plays out in the New Testament. He writes a letter to Titus that's similar. Titus, a pastor in Crete. Listen to what he says to Titus. For an overseer, as God's steward, he must be above reproach. He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. So if an elder does not trust the word of God anymore, he should not be an elder. No one should be an elder who does not solely and wholly trust that it is God's word from heaven, kept free from error and authoritative for the life of the church. If a man does not believe that, he should resign. And that should be true in any church of Christ. Because the elder's sole purpose, really, is to make sure that the ministry of the word goes forward, and they must believe the trustworthy word as taught. That's what Paul says to Titus. So that he may be able to give instruction and sound doctrine, and also to rebuke those who contradict it. There's no bigger abomination than a pastor who doesn't believe in the Bible. 2 Timothy 4, 1-2, which is another passage 
that Paul writes later in the ministry, towards the end of his ministry. He writes to Timothy at Ephesus, I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing and his kingdom, preach the word, be ready in season and out of season, reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. So back to our passage, verse 4 of Acts 6. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. The primary role of the elders is the ministry of, of prayer and of the word. Uh, ministering the word is not, by the way, just an imparting of an explanation about the meaning of the Bible. That's part of the ministry of the word. We teach in that respect. Ministry of the word is about the people of God coming to know their God and his will better through his word. That's how we come to know God better, not by my quippy ideas or creative thoughts. It's by us together opening the word and seeing what it says to know who our God is because he wrote it. So we go to the Bible for this and the elders uphold this. Ministering the word is declaring God's will so the people of God could live according to their father's instruction. Ministry or ministering the word is not simply gathering in a large college lecture hall uh, to have information disseminated. No, it's an active process that uh, confronts the people of God with the living and active word of God. Uh, the reason why, and I'd be favor, in favor of this if it made sense, let's just listen to a recording of Martin Lloyd-Jones, or I'd rather listen to a, a recording of James Boyce who wrote the first hymn we sang. Absolutely, I would rather listen to him. But you're stuck with me and us because we're with you. And so we're together and we live life together. They had the right timeless meaning of the scripture, which I should be in compliance with if it's really the right interpretation of scripture. However, you and I live here and now and we have unique features of our life that require application from your elders, um, specific to our context. So it's actually the application process of the word of God that's so necessary in every new generation. This is the ministry of the word that the elders oversee, and we see it so crucial and critical already in the life of the church in this early stage. We should not be surprised by this. And notice how prayer goes hand in hand with this ministry. Um, The ministry of the word requires dependence upon God for its effectiveness. John Calvin said wonderfully, as a bit of a as a bit of an encouragement to pastors, I would share this with the elders. And this morning, when I was looking over my sermon again, I cut and pasted this uh, to my iMessages and sent it to five pastors that I knew before I knew they'd be preaching because it was encouraging to me. Calvin said, again, we must always remember we shall lose all our labor bestowed upon plowing, sowing, and watering unless the increase comes from heaven. Therefore, it shall not suffice to take great pains in teaching unless we require the blessing at the hands of the Lord, that our labor may not be in vain and unfruitful. Hereby, it appears that the exercise of prayer is not in vain commended unto the ministers of the word. It's a great view for all of us as elders to have and for you, the people of the church, to uphold and to encourage your elders in because we need the food of the word of God and it is safeguarded by God's design through the eldership. Now notice what else comes forth from this text. Clarity about this new role in the life of a newly constituted church. It's different now from the complex of Judaism with the temple and all that was around it. Now the church would bust forth from that place. The temple would be destroyed. And by God's design, the church would spread the world over. It was in need of something else uh, to help with that message of the word to go forth in light of all the needs that people would have in those congregations. Verse 2, how to solve it. 
The twelve summoned the full number of the disciples, called for a congregational meeting. They said, it's not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Here's the problem. It's presented. Here's the solution. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty, this duty of taking care of these essential needs of the congregation, in this case, focused on the widows. But you can fill in the blank. Anything that would be a need in the life of the church in its operation uh, that would get in the way of the preaching of the word, if it's not taken care of, the deacons are specially charged with figuring out how to remove that impediment so the word could go forward. Verse 3, Therefore, brothers, in light of this issue, this challenge, pick out from among you not just anybody, not just any old volunteers, but particularly seven men who are of good repute, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. Whom we will appoint to this duty. This, these specially appointed men's number one task was to remove obstacles to the preaching of the word by the apostles and later by the elders. They had to solve practical issues so that the word could be ministered. They were appointed the duty, in this case of food distribution, but it's symbolic of the ministry that the deacons would have going forward, the essential ministry the deacons would have, a ministry that if there are not deacons, the elders have to do. You just don't ignore them. In fact, one of the most practical things about being Presbyterian is we've got like directories and handbooks for everything. Um, They're not the most fun to read, but they're really well put together. Listen to what our book of church order says about the office of deacon that might help us see its value more clearly. Because deacons by nature are servants. That's even what the word means. They'll be behind the scenes. You won't see them out in front. They'll be doing things that you don't even notice, and you don't notice them because they're being done. Um, There's not issues arising because they're taking care of them. And it's unsung. I mean, it's, it's true that it's a humble job required by people of great spiritual maturity for that purpose, among others. The BCO, our book of church order, says the office of deacon is set forth in the scriptures as ordinary and perpetual in the church. The office is one of sympathy and service. After the example of the Lord Jesus, it expresses also the communion of saints, that fellowship, especially in their helping one another in time of need. Further, it says this, it is the duty of the deacons to minister to those who are in need, to the sick, to the friendless, and to any who may be in distress. It is their duty also to develop the grace of liberality in the members of the church, to perpetuate this sense among us all, to devise effective methods of collecting the gifts of the people, and to distribute these gifts among the objects to which they are contributed. They shall have the care of the property of the congregation, both real and personal, and shall keep in proper repair the church edifice and other buildings belonging to the congregation." Let me just say, when the elders, or the, excuse me, when the deacons ask for a workday, we need help. They need help. That list of men can't do 20 acres worth of work. So their job is to help facilitate this and help gather us to use our gifts to take care of these things so that they're not hindrances, but rather assistance to the proclamation of the word and the ministry of the word. It says in matters of special importance affecting the property of the church, they cannot take final action without the approval of the session and consent of the congregation. That's not a put down on the deacons. That's just reminding all of us of their complementary role in that all things are ultimately of spiritual ends. 
So the deacons are doing their best to sensitively try to find ways to lower any hindrances to the ministry of the word. And sometimes big things come up that they might have to refer to the session about, does this affect the ministry of the word in some way we're not seeing? Let's talk about this. Should we oversee this? What do you think? And we have interaction together, harmony together about what it is we are called to do as a church. It's a beautiful compliment in its right operation. And I can say that it's been a blessing at this church to watch that harmony over the years. We're growing and we're figuring things out, but by and large, it has been a very healthy relationship. I remember being uh, connected to a church where I remember uh, they were having a terrible division in the church, and I could see pretty quickly what was happening because one of the deacons was talking about one of the elders like an us and them thing. And the deacon had the idea that they were really there as a check and balance for the eldership. Now, that could be the fault of the eldership for whatever. I don't know the details, but that's not the right way to look at the relationship. The the deacons are there to complement and to move away obstacles so the elders can do the work they're called to so they can be faithful. And um, the elders are the ones accountable to the church by way of you voting for them. There's a plurality of them. That's where the check and the balance happens. The deacons are there to uphold the ministry's clarity so that there can be the preaching of the word and the ministry of the word through the elders. When that harmony works, it is a beautiful and fruitful thing. Notice what these men are supposed to be like. Good repute, full of the spirit, full of the spirit and of wisdom. Good repute means people know that this, this person, this man's an honest man, that he can be counted on. He's trustworthy. He's faithful. People know that's true of him. He can be trusted with very sensitive things, sensitive personal matters. Helping with people's needs can be very sensitive. Handling money needs to be someone of good repute, people of good repute. Full of the Holy Spirit. They're born again. And they're not just born again. They're deep in their faith. They're full of the Holy Spirit. They're looking at things with spiritual eyes. It's not all business to them. They have business acumen usually that helps with the holding up of these physical things. But they see it through spiritual lenses. That's what we need for deacons. That's what we have. I praise God for that. But recognize it's an ongoing growth in all of us who serve in these roles. And for the church to be supportive of this. Full of wisdom. They have sober-mindedness. A certain amount of years have worked together to give them an ability to handle life skillfully. That's what we mean by this wisdom coupled with spiritual understanding. And I love the names of these first men. It tells us something else. Verse 5, they chose Stephen, a man full of faith, who we'll be introduced to again in chapter 7. Stephen, by the way, wasn't uh, your—he was— a superdeacon in many respects, as we see what happens next. He's a man full of faith and the Holy Spirit. Philip and Prochorus and Nicanor and Timon and Parmenas and Nicholas. Um, notice these names. If you notice, they're not Jewish names. These are Greek names. So the men that were first called to handle the issue with the Hellenist widows who needed distributions, the first men that either stepped up or picked and made the most sense were these probably Hellenist Jews themselves, these men, to help take care of this particular situation. In 1 Timothy, when Paul's writing to Timothy, he says this about the deacons. Because by the time he writes Timothy, 30 years have gone by since Acts 6. So now he's writing after the the church has perpetuated a bit. The apostles are old. They're going to die soon. Many have died. Now it's the elders who would carry on the ministries of the churches. But he says something not just to the elders in 1 Timothy. Listen to what he says to the deacons. Deacons, likewise, must be dignified, not double-tongued, not addicted to much wine, not greedy for dishonest gain. They must hold to the mystery of faith with a clear conscience and let them also be tested first. And 
let them serve as deacons if they prove themselves blameless. It says something interesting to deacons. It doesn't say to the elders. Their wives, likewise, must be dignified, not slanderers, but sober-minded, faithful in all things. Probably the reason for this is because of all the sensitivities that a deacon will work with when you're dealing with people with needs. Those things can be embarrassing. They can be difficult to share. We want to say we can share them with our church family. We should be able to. But when you're in the case, you don't want everybody to know. So you can't have a wife who's a gossip if you're a deacon because there's just too much sensitive information there. There's too much care. There are close quarters that will require your ministry to that family most likely. It's very well designed and thought out when you read God's Word. We shouldn't be surprised. Let deacons each be the husband of one wife, managing their children and their own households well. For those who serve well as deacons gain a good standing for themselves and also great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. Seven men were put before the apostles. We see them ordained to this role. Look at verse 6. These they set before the apostles. So the people picked the disciple. Pick, excuse me, picked the deacons. The people picked them and then put them before the apostles. And the apostles, upon examination, you might say, because he, they told the people what should be the requisites, and they prayed and laid their hands on them. Here we have a picture of, if you will, the doctrine of ordination, the laying on of hands. Calvin said, laying on of hands was a solemn sign of consecration under the law. To this end do the apostles now lay their hands upon the deacons, that they may know that they are offered to God. Finally, what is the, what is the, role, what is the result of, these, of the church running on all cylinders with the elders and the deacons in harmony like this together? Verse 7. Look at verse 7. And the word of God continued to increase. Remember, they were almost stopped with this division. There was complaining going on. This could have been really bad. But now that's solved in this new office, this new role, verse 7, and the word of God continued to increase. And the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem. And a great many of the priests, even the priests, the Jewish priests, even a great member of the number of the priests became obedient to the faith. When the, the physical issues of the church were dealt with intentionally and carefully, it freed up the ministry of the word to be multiplied. Notice back in our text, verse 1 and down to verse 7. Notice what it says at verse 1. See verse 1. Now in these days, what does it say? When the disciples were increasing in number. So the churches were growing. Numeric growth wasn't the issue. But unity was a problem and taking care of necessity was a problem. So it's great that the disciples were increasing. But I think verse 7 is with great purpose. Verse 7. And the word of God continued to increase. That's what we really want to see. I mean, you could get people, you could pack out places, but depth, because of the word, that's something more rare and far more powerful and lasting. Verse 7, the word of God continued to increase, and the number of disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem. In a great, just to show you how potent and how fruitful this is, even a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. This is a powerful movement of God, and the harmony between leaders in the church are a big part of what gave the church such potency in those days. And I would submit are still a great recipe for the health of our church today. When that harmony works together, it gives a potency to the overall ministry, a fruitfulness to the overall ministry. John Stott says, in concluding um, his comments on this passage, as a direct result of the action of the apostles in delegating the social work of the church, 
in order to concentrate on their pastoral priority, the Word of God spread. But of course, he says, the Word cannot spread when the ministry of the Word is neglected. Conversely, when pastors devote themselves to the Word, it spreads. Harmonious exercise of ministry roles in the church brings peace and fruitfulness to the church. Here's my ask of you by way of application. If you would be so gracious as to take your bulletin with you, save it this week if you don't normally, turn to the back of it and pray for the session and the diaconate of your church. These are the people that you picked as having met, met the description that Scripture gives. And I agree with you, by the way. I'm not just saying that because they could vote me out too. That's not just that. Um, these men are faithful men who love Christ and want to serve you. They have full-time jobs and full-time families and all sorts of things. So they need your prayers. We need your prayers. The deacons to have wisdom with the myriads of things they constantly are dealing with. For the elders to focus in on the things we should focus on with regard to the ministry of the word. We cannot have enough, I don't think, of your support in prayer. So please pray for these men by name and their wives and their children as you know them. Look at your directory. This is an excellent application of what we see God to do in Acts 6 and the beauty of the balance of this harmony that you, you're, the people of God, can pray for for us, for all of us. And ultimately, so that we would be more unified as a body so that the message of the gospel that we preach would have more credibility with a world that looks on to see what's different about this group. Let's pray. Lord, we are grateful for your holy word and the direction it gives. I thank you for the harmony between our elders and deacons here at Redeemer. I pray for the relationship between these offices of the church to be healthy and effective for the benefit of the furtherance of your word and its impact on this world. Lord, I lift those men who have been ordained as elders in this church. Please strengthen and encourage them in the ministry of prayer and of the word. I lift those men who have been ordained as deacons in this church. Please strengthen and encourage them in the ministry of mercy and stewardship over the physical features of this church. Guide them in their efforts to clear the way for the ministry of the word to go forth unhindered with great fruitfulness. I pray this in the name of Christ. Amen.